0: Hello, everyone. Ray here. Uh, Before you listen to this episode, it might behoove you to glance at a map of East Africa. We'll be talking about Sudan and uh, to the southeast of that is Abyssinia, uh, where the Duke of Osta's uh, troops are at. We'll be talking about Italian Somaliland, a little bit of Kenya and Eritrea. And of course, uh, North Africa as well. We've already left Solemn, Bardia. We're now talking about Tobruk. Um, and further up the coast, uh, almost at the peak of where Sinairaka sticks out into the Mediterranean, is Derna. Uh, and due west from Tobruk is Benghazi. And that's where we'll end. So, again, if you just glance at a map, it might make all this um, make a little more sense. And hopefully, it will make it uh, that much more enjoyable. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 77, Tobruk. As Operation Compass went from a five-day raid to a four-week-old campaign, Western Desert Force, unofficially the Army of the Nile, and now officially 13th Corps, continued to pursue the reeling Italian 10th Army westward. But its very success allowed a rift between Churchill and Wavell, to grow and fester. The question now that Egypt seemed all but secure was where to focus next, and the two strong personalities each felt that their view of the war was the correct one. In early January 1941, Prime Minister of South Africa Jan Smoots offered up a South African division for operations in East Africa, anything to counter the Duke of Osta's large Italian force. To Churchill... This was a godsend. To Wavell, it was more of what he didn't need. What Churchill could not see, and no one is perfect after all, is that Wavell, for now, needed replacements for his experienced troops when they fell in battle, not an altogether new group of men to be trained and equipped. But even more than that, he needed logistical units to increase the efficiency of the men he had already fighting and, of course, more equipment of all kinds. By January of 1941, each and every communication between the two British leaders seemed only to fuel the fire more. On January 6th, Anthony Eden, now Foreign Secretary, told Churchill that he was hearing from different sources that Germany was building up its resources in Romania, which it already controlled, and preparing for a campaign in the Balkans with Greece as its ultimate objective. Four days later, on January 10th, the CNC's Middle East were told they might soon have to give up their tank, anti-tank, artillery, oh, and yes, RAF squadrons, to help Greece in the near future. In other words, practically everything they were using now in Operation Compass and planning to use in East Africa. But Wavell did not take this personally, He simply replied back to London that there was a good chance that this information was being purposefully leaked so the Greeks would get nervous and demand British aid. His thinking was, if we gut our forces in Africa and Egypt and send them to Greece, we will be sufficiently weakened in all three places and will be able to resist absolutely no one. And lastly, if London desires that 13 Corps continue pushing the Italians west, we can't possibly do that and then get all those units listed to Greece in time to stop the Germans, if they are making a serious run at Greece at all. This reply was the exact opposite of what Churchill wanted to hear from a general he did not already trust. And the Prime Minister's reply was a stinging one. One, Our information contradicts that the German concentration is merely a move in a war of nerves or a bluff to cause dispersal of force. 2. Destruction of Greece would eclipse victories you have gained in Libya and might affect, decisively, Turkish attitude, especially if we have shown ourselves callous of fate of our allies. You must now, therefore, conform your plans to larger interests at stake. It's worth noting that before Italy invaded Greece, Turkey was valued more than Greece, but the latter's amazing defense against their Italian invaders helped change opinions at Whitehall. 3. Nothing must hamper capture of Tobruk, but thereafter, all operations in Libya are subordinate to aiding Greece. 4. We expect and require prompt and active compliance with our decisions, for which we bear full responsibility. It's unfortunate that the subordinate in this contest was the correct one, as time would bear out. As we covered last time, Hitler's Directive 22, codenamed Sonnenblume, or Sunflower, was issued on January eleventh, nineteen 1941. Sunflower had two parts and called for German assistance in the Mediterranean. First, a mixed group designated 5th Light Division would be sent to Tripoli, In mid-February, its assets would be made up of anti-tank, anti-aircraft, and tank units. Hitler told Foreign Minister Ciano that the fifth light would arrive sometime in mid-March. The second part, codenamed Mittelnir, would see that Fliegerkorps 10 assembled in Sicily as soon as possible. With its operational range, it would cover the western desert and assist the retreating Italian 10th Army. Mussolini gratefully responded by saying he would add to this the Ariete Armored and Trento Mechanized Divisions, which would arrive in Tripoli in early February. For now, the British were spared the pain of facing the 5th Light Division, but the Royal Navy felt the effects of Mittelmeer shortly after the fall of Bardia, because by mid-January, Flieger Corps 10 had 186 bombers, fighters, and reconnaissance aircraft in Sicily. And the convoy named Excess would be the first to feel the change in the air. Admiral Somerville's Force H, led by carrier Ark Royal, left Gibraltar and took up position as a convoy's escort. At the same time, Admiral Cunningham's main fleet, made up of the battleships Warspite and Valiant, and the carrier Illustrious, left their position further east to meet and take over responsibility for excess. Post-Taranto, these fleets were more procedural than practical. There certainly wasn't a respectable fear of Italian ships or bombers by the various crews. Even so, the most dangerous part of the trip was when passing through the Sicilian Channel. The Italians may not have had radar, but their listening posts could effectively guide their land-based bombers to their targets, especially with the proximity the narrow channel provided. On January 10th, both British fleets had been harassed by Italian aircraft, but these were relatively easy to beat off. A few days later, the Italians were back. And as before, the illustrious launched some of its Fulmar fighters. The Italians were driven off easily enough, But, with hindsight, theirs was not an attack at all, but a diversion. As the last of the Italian bombers turned away, the carrier's radar picked up a large formation heading their way, coming from Sicily. The Fulmars were quickly recalled, and the carrier turned into the wind to launch more fighters. But the fighters already in the air didn't get back in time, and those just launched weren't enough to make a difference on their own. Soon, between 30 and 40, Junkers 88s and 87s attacked the carrier. Illustrious was hit six times before the recalled Fulmars made it back. At that point, the Junkers made for their base, but their job was done. The wounded carrier wandered about, unable to control its own course for the next three hours. With minimal repairs, the Illustrious crew was able to use its engines to steer a shaky course towards Malta. En route, the ship was attacked twice more and hit once more. But the carrier's troubles were far from over, and her days of an active participant in the Mediterranean War were numbered. Illustrious made it back to port, but the Germans spent the next 13 days bombing the dockyard while those on the ground attempted repairs. The British and local Maltese dockyard engineers and workers ignored the bombs as best they could and pushed themselves to get the ship into working order. And at dusk on January 23rd, the illustrious slipped away, made for the Suez, and then started its long voyage to the United States for further repairs. The shift in power that came to the Mediterranean after Taranto now swung the other way. And this dovetailed nicely for the Axis, as German and Italian reinforcements were getting ready to make for Tripoli. And now that the Germans were in the Mediterranean, they brought their tried and true practice of laying mines. The British were to lose many ships in the future to these mines. But more than that, the delays caused by searching for them amounted to this. Allied convoys were no longer safe in the Mediterranean, and using the Suez was now, at best, a gamble. After the fall of Bardia, General Archibald Wavell had a problem, and it was a nice problem to have, certainly preferable to so many other possible ones. O'Connor's five-day raid had become a four-week campaign and seemed able to go on for another four Wavell's problem was balancing out what forces he had within the area he was responsible for, all the while effectively handling all enemy forces therein. And so far, General Richard O'Connor had destroyed eight Italian divisions, captured 70,000 prisoners, confiscated at least 400 Italian artillery pieces, a few medium tanks, just over 100 light tanks, nearly 1,000 trucks, and stockpiles of petrol. The last two items of this list were, literally, keeping Operation Compass moving further west. Added to this was the major base of Bardia. But until its harbor was cleared, it wasn't possible to use it as a port. This meant that if Wavell wanted O'Connor's forces to continue, and he did, despite his pressing problems elsewhere, Tobruk had to be captured intact. So when O'Connor formally asked permission to go after the port city, Wavell's acquiescence was only a formality. O'Connor, knowing how his superior would respond, already had Tobruk surrounded. Besides, they each had read the latest intelligence report that reminded them that there were still 80,000 Italian troops with 900 guns in Cyrenaica, and further west, another 90,000 with 500 guns. The end was in sight, but it was still far from over. After Bardia, British Commonwealth forces moved, unopposed, on to Tobruk. Meanwhile, British intelligence earned its pay this time by correctly assessing the Italian strength within the garrison at about 25,000 men with around 200 guns. A man named General Manella was in charge with his twenty second corps, and the balance of his force was made up of the sixty first certi division But what made mckay 's Australian smile was that, compared to Bardia, the perimeter of Tobruk was almost twice as large, but Manella only had about half the number of troops to defend it but there was a real danger for the Australians here; this battle would not take place in a vacuum. About a hundred miles to the northwest, along the coast, was the 60th Sabratha Division at Derna. And due west of Tobruk, again about a hundred miles away, was an armored group of unknown strength under General Babini at makili Would those two groups attack Mackay's men as they themselves attacked Tobruk's perimeter? No one could answer that. And it looked as if Graziani tired of the humiliation, was now playing his own chess game. The thinking was that the Italians would sacrifice Tobruk, but using it in a delaying gesture, while a new defensive line was set up with Derna and Michele as its endpoints. If so, and if that line held, then the Italians could stop the British advance and maintain their hold on the fertile jebdel Abkar bulge that helped make up Cyrenaica. And because it jutted out into the Mediterranean, this battle would affect the Royal Navy as well. O'Connor's staff pored over intelligence reports as well as reconnaissance photos. They then told the general that they estimated McKay's attack would need 1,000 tons of artillery ammunition. And as Bardia's harbor was still unusable, those shells would have to come over land. The earliest the supplies could be there was January 21st, so the Aussies got to work preparing their attack. Meanwhile, Wavell and Air Marshal Longmore flew to Athens. The determined Greek repulse of Italian aggression stunned the world, but it lifted Winston Churchill. Finally, here was someone handing the Axis their first clear defeat in Europe. And as the British did not have enough men in the ranks yet to properly offer a challenge on the continent, it seemed only logical that the two still-standing antagonists of the dictators should join forces. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com Each Greek advance or Italian setback thrilled the British leader. He knew the Greeks were suffering, their military and their people, despite their victories. And though he used his head in taking up Britain's defense, when it came to the Greeks, his heart dominated. Watching week after week as the Greeks showed their mettle to the world, the moved Churchill came to a decision by mid-January. Against the advice of many, British policy would be thus. After the fall of Tobruk, Greece would take precedence over all concerns in North Africa. He would offer Prime Minister Metexas the 13th Corps. And in that vein, General Wavell and Air Marshal Longmore were instructed to fly to Athens to discuss the coming perceived German threat. But Matexas was more realistic and less emotional than Churchill in his view of Greece's situation. After hearing the two British officers out, Matexas only agreed to the logistical help offered. But he didn't want the military units just yet. The Greek Prime Minister explained that if he allowed Allied fighting men on Greek soil, then Hitler would have the excuse he needed to invade the irony was, the British manpower that was being offered to him was not enough to stave off the German assault. Why should he agree to a position that would invite German aggression without the means to stop it? As for the direct British help, the Texas would wait until the force that could be sent was significantly larger. If Churchill was frustrated with Wavell, this rebuff was felt personally. However, for now, Wavell's forces in North Africa were saved to continue Operation Compass. Ironically, the Duke of Aosta then went on to save Wavell's plans for East Africa again against Churchill's desire. After the fall of Sidi Barani and Bardia, the Duke did not feel secure with his position in East Africa, despite having 250,000 troops, mostly in Abyssinia, but also in Southern Sudan. Eritrea, British and Italian Somaliland, which also threatened Kenya. On January 11th, the Duke asked Mussolini if he could withdraw his forces from southern Sudan, as its relative flatness lent itself to British mechanized forces. Mussolini, having lost so much in Greece and northern Africa, agreed. So, those forces were transferred to northern Eritrea, near the hilly country of Engordat. And Berento, These passes had to be kept out of British hands, as they not only led to northern Abyssinia, but also to the coast of Eritrea. If the British made it that far, it would allow the Royal Navy to play a larger role in the area, and the Italians did not want to see that day come anytime soon. Now, this theater of war had already been discussed and hotly debated by Churchill and Weible, but it would be an ongoing battle. At the end of October of 1940, Anthony Eden met with Wavell, and they agreed that Italian forces were too numerous in East Africa to leave it to local troops under British direction, as Churchill desired. The Prime Minister's view was that it was best to gather up as many regular troops as possible and station them in Egypt, so they could react as a reserve ready to be sent to the Balkans, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, or any other area that became threatened. But during the conference at Katorum in central Sudan in late October, Prime Minister of South Africa Jan Smuts, and he would become a field marshal in 1941, agreed with Webel that Kenya needed the protection of regular troops. Only after Kenya was safe should South African troops be moved to Egypt, as Churchill wanted. Wavell was allowed to have his way, and the result of the conference was that British General William Platt, commanding in the Sudan, was to attack Galabat along the Sudanese-Abyssinian border in November, and then to advance onto Kassala along the Sudanese-Eritrea border in January, using the 5th Indian Division, which was just arriving. Also, General Allan Cunningham, brother of Admiral Cunningham, who had just taken charge in Kenya, was to study and carry out Prime Minister Smoot's desire to attack Kismayu in Italian Somaliland in January 1941. As Kismayu was along the coast in Italian Somaliland and about 300 miles east of Nairobi, it was felt that this action would go a long way in securing Kenya. Also decided at the Katorum Conference was to give exiled Abyssinian Emperor Halle Selassie, more material support and to help him re-enter his country just as soon as a stable section of the country could be brought under Allied control. Selassie had been away since the mid-1930s and pushed the British for help. To that end, ex-settler Colonel D.A. Sanford, who had been expelled from Abyssinia by the Italians in 1933, re-entered the country in August of 1940 to make contact with and advise Hali Selassie's rebel troops in the Gajim region. Meanwhile, back at Katorum, the British were raising and equipping four battalions of exiled Abyssinians. They were being trained by British officers and NCOs. The idea was for these troops to be ready when Sanford felt the time had come to begin to push the Italians out. Then Selassie could enter the scene and begin a general invasion and insurrection. To help matters along and to represent British interests further, a Major Ord Wingate would be the Emperor's military advisor. So, Wingate made his way to Katorum to take charge of the troops being trained there. But things did not start off well for the British. General Platt had hoped to open a way to Abyssinia with an attack on Galabat, on the Sudanese-Abyssinian border in November of 1940. However, the attack failed. It wasn't the fault of Brigadier J.W. Slim who led the assault. The men of the 5th Indian were simply not ready. They did not receive enough training to acquire a battle sense, something Wavell saw firsthand during the Great War. And as this clash took place before Sidi Barani and Bardia, the Italians did not fear the British military, as they soon would. Further opening the rift between Churchill and Wavell was the desired attack by General Cunningham from Kenya to Kismayo in southern Italian Somaliland along the coast. After studying the situation, General Cunningham reported to Wavell that his attack should be postponed until after the rains in May 1941. Besides, there was no way he could get a large number of men through the northern bush country of Kenya without adequate transportation and portable water. For now, there was no water, and no way to transport it. Wavell dutifully forwarded this on to Churchill, who, as expected, rejected the premise and wanted earlier action. As Churchill was the civilian leader in charge, and the military men the servants of the government, Wavell met with Platt and Cunningham in Cairo. They examined the logistics, the maps, and the resources, and concluded that Cunningham was wrong. The attack could not take place in early May. It would be more like late May, probably June, before everything was in place to feel secure about their chances. And when bringing bad news to your boss, it's best to deliver it all and only take one scolding as opposed to two. Wavell also mentioned that Platt's attack on Kasala, his second planned thrust, again on the Sudanese-Eritrean border, to help pay the way to bring Selassie back home, could not happen until at least February 1941. The reason was simply waiting for the 4th Indian Division to finish its transfer from the western desert. To sum up, the Duke of Osta's 250,000 men could not be ignored. The idea of local resistance under British leadership to wear down the Italians was judged sound by all concerned, but the timing was wrong. But after Sidi Barani and Bardia, the Italians probably saw the British as the French saw the Germans during the spring and summer of 1940. Now that the Duke of Osta had Mussolini's permission, he began his silent withdrawal. On January 18th, General Platt found out that the Italian garrisons at Casala and Galabat had slipped away. Not wanting to give the Italians time to set up further away and dig in, Platt found himself ordering an attack the next day. It didn't matter that the 4th Indian Division was incomplete. Beresford Pierce moved forward with what he had. And because of the withdrawal, Emperor Haile Selassie was able to land 30 miles inside his own country. The Patriot Revolt, the local resistance as it was being called, started taking shape. But I can't imagine Churchill crowed too loudly. After all, the Italian's retreat would not have been possible without Operation Compass. And who knows how that would have turned out without Wavell to shield his men. Now that O'Connor had permission to take to Brooke, he needed it to hurry up and happen. This was because he had recently been informed that fresh Italian forces were being sent to Tripoli. If he didn't push on soon, he might find four more Italian divisions and a tank group between Derna and the Gulf of Sirte, further west. And who knew what the Germans were really up to? So the date to attack Tobruk was set for January 20th, but McKay soon asked for a 24-hour delay to again repair and make operational for the attack a few more of his infantry tanks as he only had 12 working at the moment. O'Connor, remembering what 24 hours got him last time, at least five more tanks for Bardia, agreed. But if McKay wanted more time, O'Connor wanted something in return. To increase the Australians' chance of success, or rather, to hopefully reduce the number of Allied casualties, O'Connor wanted a squadron of Australian mechanized cavalry to be outfitted with some of the captured Italian medium tanks. No use in just letting them sit there. As the 16th, 17th, and 19th Australian brigades got into their jump-off points and their artillery batteries loaded up on the recently-arrived artillery shells, the Desert rats received their final orders. The 7th Armored Division was to position itself along the western side of the perimeter and protect McKay's left flank. Then, once Tobruk had fallen, they were to dash further west along the coast, and invest Derna. At 5.40 a.m. on January 21st, red very lights were shot into the early morning sky, descending over the Italian perimeter. Concentrated Allied artillery units began lobbing shells, and McKay's infantry charged forward to an Australian voice shouting, Go on, you bastards! The 16th Brigade of Allen, and the 19th Brigade of Robertson attacked their perimeter at a point due south of Tobruk itself. This time, the men went in without their leather jerkins or greatcoats and only carried equipment deemed necessary. As at Bardia, they used their Bangalore torpedoes for the wire, then pulled out their pick and shovels for the anti-tank ditch. Once a section of the ditch was filled in, the men used their hands to search for mines in the sand. With a way now cleared, the 18 serviceable heavy infantry tanks entered the breach at 7 a.m. During all this, the 17th Brigade under Savage launched a diversionary attack at the perimeter's east side. As before, the 16th and 19th fanned out in an ever-widening arc. But then, not wanting to be too predictable, they then changed tactics to deal with Tobruk's unique layout. Three miles southwest of Tobruk itself, but still well within the perimeter, the Italians had built two forts, Solaro and Pilestrino, But unlike the larger forts throughout North Africa, these two were close enough to support each other. If Tobruk was to be taken, these two forts had to be captured first. So the 19th broke formation and headed northwest to make for the two forts. But the Italians had made changes too, not wanting to be predictable. The 19th ran into another barbed wire and ditch set up. But even before reaching this, the Australians were met with stiff resistance and had to overcome several counterattacks by Italian medium tanks. The tanks were dispersed with by two pounders, but this took time. And even after the Italian infantry lost their tank support, they continued to stubbornly resist as the invaders tried to make their way to the forts. Honestly, the 19th didn't expect such a consistent defense, and it wasn't until 9.30 that night before the first fort, Pilestrino, was captured, and the other fort, Salaro, was invested. The good news for the Aussies that night was that General Manella's headquarters had been taken, with he himself captured. Only then did the invaders feel secure enough to stop operations for the night. They assumed that the morrow would bring another Italian collapse and surrender. Still, their sleep was unsettled as they heard explosions from the direction of Tobruk. Clearly, the Italians were making sure that the Allies, once again, could not use the harbor and probably any stored-up supplies. Daylight saw the advance begin again, and as expected, and hoped for. The Italians, seeing that their position was hopeless, began to surrender. Amazingly, despite the explosions, there was little damage to the port and surrounding buildings. The Australians moved into Tobruk, and the Royal Navy, after sweeping for mines for the next two days, started dropping off supplies. Making the port once again operational, McKay reported that he had lost 355 men, but had 25,000 new prisoners. At Tobruk itself, a mountain of undamaged supplies were found, and McKay desperately needed them, if only to feed the prisoners. By late January 22nd, Australian soldiers were walking around Tobruk, wearing swords and medals taken from Italian officers, all the while stuffing themselves with confiscated canned fruit and lighting their cigarettes with Italian money. Yes, they swaggered about, but they had earned it. However, electric whiskers, Bergonzoli had escaped again. As for O'Connor, who had spent at least the last four weeks obsessed with logistics, the greatest prize at Tobruk was the water distillation plant and its wells that had a capacity for 40,000 gallons a day. With this and his captured Italian trucks, O'Connor kept his rickety advance moving forward, and supplied. But he never smiled. No one could remember the last time the little terrier smiled. What they didn't know was that during all of Operation Compass, with all its success, Richard O'Connor suffered from a stomach ailment. The doctors would just have to wait. By the end of the first day of fighting, the British knew Tobruk would be theirs, so Krieg's 7th Armored Division set out that morning of the 22nd along the coast and made for Derna. But it wasn't too long before the deep wadis and uneven and broken ground before the tanks stopped their advance. Instead, it was decided that the tanks would head due west from Tobruk and advance on Mekili, while Robertson's 19th Brigade was carried in British and Italian trucks along the coast towards Derna. The Desert Rats knew that if Michele could be taken, then they were well on their way, if they continued due west, to Benghazi. And the faster that happened, the airfields within Cyrenaica's bulge would come under British control. This meant, setting aside the Germans now stationed at Sicily, that Malta and future convoys would find themselves less threatened from this direction. On January 24th, the 4th Armored Brigade clashed with the tanks of the Babini Group, just outside Michele. The fighting was intense and at point-blank range. The British lost one cruiser and six light tanks. However, the Italians lost nine medium tanks. Clearly, this battle went to the British. General O'Connor once again saw an opportunity to completely destroy an enemy unit as Babini's tanks were too far away to be supported from either the north or the west. But nothing has any business being perfect. And through a combination of bad maps, miscommunication, and the British tank unit's unwillingness to operate at night, Babini and his remaining tanks managed to slip out that night and head for Derna to the north. Those tanks were hoping to support the 60th Sabratha Division in resisting the 19th Australian Brigade. While the British and Italian tanks were slogging it out in front of McKeely, Wavell visited O'Connor at his headquarters to discuss the feasibility of Churchill and the Chiefs of Staff Directive for an immediate advance on Benghazi, further to the west. The Prime Minister's nose might have been put slightly out of joint by the Greek refusal, But that didn't mean the Bulldog did not see an opportunity when one presented itself. The Greeks' loss would be O'Connor's gain. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I hope this episode made sense uh, with East Africa and North Africa. And to be honest, it's only going to get worse because the operations in East Africa are going to keep going. They're going to keep going in North Africa. They were going to have to throw in Greece. So just keep glancing at a map every once in a while, and uh, you'll be okay. So I just wanted to take a moment and thank uh, some of the latest members who signed up. Um, Jason K., Paul B., Nick H., John H., Brent T., Joseph W., Michael M., David W., David P., and Alexandre B. So, thank you very much. And if anybody else is interested in the membership episodes, I think I'm starting to get better at it now. Uh, there are eight out there waiting for you, soon to be nine. As for donations, I would like to thank Stephen A. from Tenbury Wells, UK, Ethan I. from San Diego, California, Gary Bainbridge from Tamworth, UK. Thank you, Gary. And Brendan from Australia. And Brendan, if you were using someone else's PayPal account, uh, it only confused me a little bit. So thank you, Anne, for letting him use your account. Please don't forget the uh, newspaper contest uh, because I want to get a few more names before I do the drawing. So just send me an email and let me know that you're interested in that. Um, And finally, uh, this episode could have been out earlier, probably about three hours earlier, if it wasn't for the Walking Dead series. So if you want to be mad at anybody, blame them and finally and i mean it this time i would like to thank sam m for his um, audio rendition of go on you bastards i appreciate that sam um i also had a runner-up his name was andy b so i thought we'd leave with his just so i could put it in there Uh, andy listens to the podcast and um, really wanted to do this so thank you andy for your contribution take care everyone go on you bastards